Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Last Saturday, July 13th, Willem Vance Bronson attempted to burn the fleet of buses used to transport imprisoned asylum seekers in and out of the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington. He was shot to death by guards. Some immigrant watchers reported that ICE canceled many of the mass raids planned against immigrant families across the country due to Vance Bronson's action. Amid an avalanche of distortion and fear-mongering, La Resistencia, a group which supports struggles organized by detainees there, issued a strong and clear statement following the action. Here it is. Quote, Early this morning, a person who appears to have been engaged in a protest against the Northwest Detention Center, NWDC, in Tacoma was shot and killed by members of the Tacoma Police Department. Today marks yet another death linked to the detention center and another death at the hands of the police. Based on available information, including the police scanner recording, Willem Vance Bronson, the protester killed, appears to have been targeting not the detention center itself, as has been widely reported by the media, but the parking lot across the street from the detention center, which houses the NWDC's transportation infrastructure. This infrastructure includes a fleet of buses that transports immigrants to be caged at the detention center and transports immigrants from the detention center to the Yakima airport, from which they are deported. Mr. Vance Bronson was apparently trying to set the deportation buses on fire when he was shot and killed. His actions sadly reflect the level of desperation people across the country feel about the government's outrageous violence against immigrants, which includes the use of detention centers to cage migrants both currently living in the U.S. and those seeking asylum. This death results from the federal government's unresponsiveness to the anger and despair people feel at the horrors unfolding both at the border and in the interior, and from the inability of officers to de-escalate rather than shooting to kill. But for the city of Tacoma, allowing the GEO Group's facility to be built and expanded in Tacoma, this death and the death and suffering of those inside the detention center would have been avoided. The NWDC has become a liability, not just for the tens of thousands who have been caged there, but for the city of Tacoma itself. It's past time for the city of Tacoma to cancel GEO's business license. It's clear that this business is a deadly one and has only brought pain and suffering to our region. La Resistencia calls on the city of Tacoma to hold immediate public hearings addressing the Tacoma Police's actions today that resulted in the loss of life at the detention center and why the city continues to allow GEO Group to operate with a city business license. A hunger striker held inside NWDC died last year after the administration failed to respond. Meanwhile, four new collective hunger strikes have broken out inside ICE facilities across the country. 36 immigrants in the Yuba County Jail in California are on strike in response to poor conditions, vermin, and lack of medical care. A detention center outside Jackson, Mississippi has been rocked by a hunger strike launched by a local electrician who was arrested and marked for deportation. A local media report says, quote, The daughter, who asked to be identified only as Maria, said she has spoken twice with her father. After one minute, the line disconnects. He told her, Things are really bad in here, she said. He told her that others need medical attention and they need soap, toothpaste, and shampoo. His commissary money from the previous facilities hasn't yet been transferred, and he has no money to buy essentials. He told her and the other detainees decided to unite and go on hunger strike. Unquote. At the same time, prisoners in detention facilities in New Mexico and Louisiana have also gone on hunger strike. 
in Louisiana, demands included access to bond and more fairness during hearings. This week, we shared two presentations from the recent Fight Toxic Prisons Convergence, held this past month in Gainesville, Florida. Fight Toxic Prisons is in its fourth year of an annual conference that focuses on the intersection of mass incarceration and the environment. Our first segment features Jamani and Jordan, who speak about the environmental impact of prison and policing. After that, we have a call-in that happened during the conference between a prisoner in San Quentin and the Fight Toxic Prisons audience. We'd like to apologize for the challenging sound quality in these segments. As you'll note during the call-in, there are around 80 prisoners currently on strike in San Quentin against the current phone policies and rates, which means that our call had to take place via a cell phone. But despite these sound issues, we feel the segments were still worth airing and hope you enjoy it. Here's Jamani and Jordan. The earth is dying, and the prison industrial complex is a major contributor to that, from policing to surveillance to incarceration to courthouses. Um, just a few examples, like exhaust released from police vehicles that are surveilling us 24-7, um, emissions outputs that are associated with traveling from home to the courthouse to visit your loved one to... Um, police stations, all those emissions that are unaccounted for, um, water pollution by means of sewage dumping um, and overcrowded prisons where their wastewater um, treatment plant can't necessarily process the amount of sewage and waste that's going through it because the prisons are so overpopulated. And yeah, I'll, I'll go into more of these things in depth throughout this presentation, but those are just a few examples. Um, and thus far, like advocacy around intersections between environmental justice and criminal justice have focused on human health. Um, and I feel like, one, anything that's harming the environment is consequently harming everyone who's a part of it, animals, human beings included. Um, but also, I feel like there's an opportunity to engage a different group of people into the abolitionist movement, and those are environmentalists um, and people who are really concerned about protecting the earth and who do not know what the impact of policing and imprisonment has on the earth. Um, yeah, so before I go into it, I just want to acknowledge the groundwork that has been laid for me. Um, like I said, I, I organized with Critical Resistance and, and I've learned a lot about the, the history of their organizing even before I became involved. And in 2001, um, they were able to shut down a prison that was supposed to be built in uh, Delano, um, California. And um, yeah, okay. And then, as you guys know, yesterday, like um, FTP uh, was able to stop the construction of the prison in Letcher County. So this isn't like a wheel that I'm inventing or reinventing. Um, I'm just really trying to speak to a different audience and just reframing the conversation to engage environmentalists. Um, so I'll start off with policing. So I already talked about emissions, but in 2015, there was a police alternative fuel summit um, in Illinois. And there was a report that was shared that said that law enforcement agencies are the largest consumers of fuel in terms of gas um, in the Midwest. And that's something that we don't normally think about. Police cars are running for an entire shift most of the time. There's a lot of idle time. Police cars are just running without doing anything, just surveilling us and waiting to uh, incarcerate us. Um, and then a police cruiser can burn up to 10 gallons of gas.
gas during one shift, um, which is wild. Also, um, police cars are usually bigger, and sometimes they have, like, sports cars or fancy cars, which burn a lot more gas. Um, Also, looking at, like, paramilitary tactics that are employed by police officers. So there's increased air pollution every time we see a military tank or um, uh, tear gas that's being employed on, on folks. Those are all toxins that are being released into the air. So each time there's been, like, a long standing military conflict in your city, whether that's LA or Ferguson or Baltimore or wherever, like that's contributing to emissions and pollution in the air. Um, And then just police stations and sheriff offices that are operating 24 seven across the country, thousands of them through natural disasters, through everything always in operation and the water electricity and electricity consumption that's happening there that we're not really accounting for. So then moving on to imprisonment. So I've already mentioned like sewage dumping due to overpopulated prisons. Um, But, you know, there's also threats through prison construction, as we see, like with Letcher County, how there were endangered species and protected lands that were being threatened. Um, Intensive prison labor. So toxic waste from metal fabrication plants, just, uh, again, not being able to process the waste that's as a that is a result of both overpopulation and production um, most of the times that's illegal and not illegal but legally slave work that's happening um there's a lot of laundry runoff um that's happening in nearby waterways that's causing increased amounts of phosphorus in the water which is hurting the water it's hurting the um, animals that live in the water and also just the people who live in surrounding communities who have to drink that stuff um, and when a prison is overpopulated or a jail is overpopulated, that increases the amount of runoff that's there. Um, and then moving on to transportation and surveillance. So, you know, I already kind of talked about the emissions from traveling to different parts of the system. That's really unaccounted for. Um, also, like, uh, there. this is a quote, but this is the average carceral facility. This includes, like, courthouses, police headquarters, office buildings, um, the average carceral facility often generates more carbon emissions in the automobile transportation needed to reach it than in the operation of the building itself. Um, So it's just something to think about, right? Like just always having to move between these systems and not thinking about the environmental impact that that's having. Um, So proximity is important. And later I I want to brainstorm with you all about some ways to address this and to, to reduce this. And I think that one of those um, pathways is is through centralizing things um, and not having so many different facilities but maybe sharing like a courthouse with a probation house I mean we don't need any of it but practically court systems have a major impact on or that they're, they're a, a major contributor to deforestation um, if you think about all of the paperwork that is inside of a courthouse if you think about all of the uh, wood-based furniture that's inside of a courthouse also that's mostly produced by incarcerated people um, who are working through state contracts to produce the furniture that's inside of a courtroom. Um, And then again, like emissions associated with transportation to and from court. Um, So then moving on to accountability, right? Like none of these agencies are really tracking their output the way they should be. It's really hard to track this information from any agency. I mean, they don't don't even know how many people they have in pretrial. They definitely don't know how many emissions they're putting out. So they're, they're really their operations are pretty much unregulated when it comes to 
how they're hurting the environment and emissions output. And Fight Toxic Prisons in collaboration with um, the EPA has has come up with like an interactive digital map where you can map out locations of toxic jails and prisons. Um, but, you know, we need to expand that to incorporate all pieces of the prison industrial complex. Like, we need to know what are, what is the input that, that policing and, um, and police vehicles and police stations are having as well. Going into what not to do. So, in, t- in having this conversation previously, someone brought up, like, video visitation um, in jails and prisons to cut the the climate cost of emissions um, and that's something that we don't want to do right because even though we want to try to come up with strategies to reduce our emissions output we don't want to deprive incarcerated people and their loved ones of like basic dignity and connection and being able to see their loved ones and have human contact all of that is really important another suggestion that I heard that I feel like we also shouldn't do is this idea of like greening justice so like putting gardens and courthouses or having green jobs at the prison or I mean the goal is to starve the system not to feed it and not to put more money into it and if we're talking about this idea of sustainability like incarcerating people is not sustainable no matter how green the facility is but things we can do so like I said uh, I think one strategy might be to shrink the system by shrinking the, the number of facilities that are needed um, for one person to navigate through the system. Um, so placing these systems closer to each other, combining services into co-located facilities, we could just end construction completely and just invest into community-based systems of care for sure. But in the case that a facility is going to be built regardless of our protest or regardless of our resistance, then, you know, I think that it is okay to advocate for, like, not nature-based things, but, like, windows in the cells and, like, you know, things that just make every the, the everyday of being incarcerated more bearable and manageable for folks. And I feel like just having that access to nature might be important. I mean, I also feel like we could advocate for courthouses to turn to electronic database management um, instead of having a bunch of paperwork and again like we shouldn't need them at all but like practically I think that something that could come out of that is integrated system so like if everything is online or in, in an integrated database system then you have the courthouse who's also talking to like social services who's also talking to healthcare. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing uh, but we can talk more about that but I see that as like if a courthouse sees that you're on all of these different social service programs, then maybe like there's a need-based assessment that can start to come into play. Or if they see that, oh, you have been in these mental health facilities, then there's a different kinds of care and support that might come out of that if there's integrated electronic systems instead of having paperwork for everything. But yeah, I guess my final statement to environmentalists who are out there is that like you can't support any part of the prison industrial complex while also trying to resist environmental pollution and climate change like all environmentalists you have to be abolitionists of the prison industrial complex if you're really serious about protecting the earth yeah the fight that you mentioned with critical resistance and others of east los angeles against that prison they were being proposed in california 
is what inspired the tactics we used for the fight against the Electric County Prison. They were the first folks to use challenging the environmental impact statement as a strategy to delay the entire process, right? And then come in with grassroots organizing to kill it. Unfortunately, that prison ended up getting built five years later, um, which is why I think we need to have some longevity in our campaign analysis and strategy. Um, but if you look at prison construction in California before and after that fight, even though that prison got built, overall prison rise in California dropped dramatically after that. Um, so yes, the one prison got built, but uh, that really threw a wrench in their entire works. And the second comment before I forget, um, yeah, we weren't really collaborating with the EPA. We were more like headbutting with the EPA because we were trying to get prisoners to be included a uh, protected category under the EPA's Environmental Justice 2020 framework, which is folks they prioritize to implement their environmental policy, right? So we met with them at the first convergence. They did not include prisoners as a protected population. But after another year of sending a lot of angry emails at them, they did agree to include prisons in their environmental justice screen, EJ screen mapping tool. So if you go to EJ screen, type it into Google, uh, you can go onto the map that has several different national environmental uh, toxin indicators, and you can click additional maps and prisons. And you can see uh, which prisons are built uh, next to Superfund sites, next to hazardous waste dumps, in areas with high particulate matter, a bunch of different things. So I think we should also look at the way the state and the prison system weaponizes temperature as a tool of political repression. Uh, so for example, Operation Push in Florida, the beginning of 2018, statewide prison strike, uh, Kevin Rashid Johnson. Uh, Rashid was writing just as a journalist on the prison strike, and I don't know what prison he was at, um, but uh, they took him in the middle of winter and they put him in a cell with a broken window and no running water and left him there until uh, he was able to get a communique out uh, that, and it was a very short one, just basically saying, I'm about to die, I need help now. Um, and some his lawyers were able to get down there and sort of force them to move him out of that cell. Um, but it, it's not a passive thing, it's active state violence, right? And then we can also look at the case of Keith Cole, uh, who's incarcerated in Texas at the Wallace Pack unit. And Keith Cole successfully led a lawsuit against the Texas Department of Corrections for there being no air conditioning in that facility. And several people, like within the, his block and across the entire building, were getting heat strokes, getting X, Y, and Z. And the Texas Department of Corrections claimed that it was because of pre existing conditions, not because there's no air conditioning in a brick building when it's 100 degrees outside all summer. Okay, peace and God's blessings, everyone. First, I want to say thank you all for all the hard work and all your dedication that you do out there for us. We appreciate everything that you do for us. Thank you and God bless all of you. And, uh, I've been in San Quentin for 23 years. I, I was arrested as a young man. I was 18 years old. I was convicted of the Southern California. Hey, excuse me. So in San Quentin, just so he's on hold for a second because in San Quentin, they're actually doing a protest right now against the state phone, so he's calling from the underground. <laughs>
in the late 80s and early 90s during a lot of criminalization surrounding crack cocaine. Um, he was one of the folks that were swept up and he's actually on death row in San Quentin um, right now on a life sentence and he's been there since he was 18 years old. So I just wanted to share a little bit about his struggle. And right now they're doing a protest against the state phones um, and that's why they're only using the underground to communicate with us. So thank you all for your attention. Okay, I'm sorry about that. Um, I'm on a cell phone. Uh, we're protesting using the state phone because of the charge in our family. It's ridiculous. And so, like I was saying to you earlier, um, I was convicted at the age of My life was taken. My liberty was taken. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to people out in the world that is so fight this tremendous battle with government, with the state, you know, it, it's, it means a lot to me. It means a lot, but we, they're very You know, a lot of people talk about We are against you. We are for the abolishment of the system. We believe that reform somehow means that this is okay. This is not okay. You know, we're against what Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom, he, he, he says he's against the death penalty. But he hasn't made any real moves to end the death penalty in California. You know, any governor that takes place has to come in and execute anyone. So we're against reform. We're for abolishing. Uh, we believe wholeheartedly that money plays a big part and politics plays a big part. Uh, viciousness and money and politics to us is viciousness and evilness because it lets them harm poor It lets them take advantage of poor You know, a lot of people think about race. We think about class. We think it's a class struggle. We think it's a struggle against evilness. And we believe that wholeheartedly. How can you put an 18 year old kid on death row who's never been in trouble? Take his life. Profit from him. And deny him his right. At every opportunity. We stand against it. And we hope that the people out there stand again. And so, you know, this is our struggle. This is our struggle. And we appreciate everyone for us. Yeah, do anybody, is there any questions? Does, does anyone have any questions? I'm sure people are curious what's going on. Good afternoon. I, I want to know what specific types of actions do you think would be most helpful to you right now for people on the outside to be doing, to help further what you're doing on the inside? The first thing, we need people to vote. We need people to come out and vote. We need people in the state of California to come out and oppose death. We need people to come out and oppose life to children. We need people to come out and support the movement. 
That's what we need. We need. Only thing California understands is money. And, and we need our people to come out and voice their opinion about what these politicians are doing in the state. When it comes to juvenile crime, when it comes to housing of young people, I'm, I'm I'm okay with my situation. I care about what it takes with these young people, our children. That's our struggle. And if we don't fix the system for our children, then this will continue. Well, we need our people to come out and vote. We need our people to say stand against it. We need a united voice. That's what we need. That is our struggle. That's the only thing they understand. The, 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 okay, first, the list of demands that we believe that we should have free phone calls, that our family should be, that our family shouldn't be extorted by the state. That's what's going on. That is extortion. You've already drank a lot, and you already proved that you're capable of killing us. And so what they're doing now is extorting our loved ones. And so our demand is that we want free phone calls. And, and, and we believe that this is essential to healing a lot of wounds in the community. You know, we're, a lot of people are hurt. Vic, victim impact, you know, there's victims. And we, we can't be callous and forget that there's people who have lost their love. And we have to take recognition of that. And so, while we want to take recognition of that, we want to also recognize that our family members are of the state that they're being extorted. Now, I can't, I can't give names to the people who are participating because their families are under threat. You know, they're visiting, getting threatened. And so what I will tell you is that it's about, out of 700 people, 700 to some people in California death row, right now we have about maybe 80 people participating. We're trying to convince everybody that this is a struggle that everybody needs to take up. But it's hard to tell a man on death row who don't have access to a cell phone not to use the phone and call his love when he believes his time is when his life is limited. So it's, that's an ongoing struggle. But we are doing it. You know, this struggle is universal. It's a struggle between class and race. And, and so we have to understand. We have to understand that people are trying to play us against, against each other. They're trying to divide us. They're trying to conquer us. And they're trying to hold us down. That is their goal. And that will always be their goal. And the only thing that we have standing against it 
is us, our bodies, our minds, our souls, our spirits. And in support of us, we have our ancestors. We have the gods that have worship. We have our community. God bless everybody. Thank you all for the support. Thanks to everybody for um, listening and hearing his words. And he, we have some of the most inspiring, dope people behind the walls. And just that support and solidarity means so much. And he told me yesterday that he was um, going through a rough time, but he was so inspired to think that people from across the country were going to allow him space to speak today. So that's how much it meant to him that it, it was transformative that you all were able to engage with him. So thank you for your attention. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.